Welcome to Corwin's Leaders Coaching Leaders Podcast with host Peter DeWitt. This podcast is from education leaders for education leaders. Every week, Peter and our guests get together to share ideas, put research into practice, and ensure every student is learning, not by chance, but by design. Hello, Peter. Hey, Tanya. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I am doing well, actually. Thank you for asking. Have you been running recently? Why do I feel like you've been running recently? I have been running. I just did a half marathon and I'm a little bummed that you weren't at the starting line with me, but I did a half marathon here in Albany, New York, where I live. So, yeah. Next time, listeners, you can hold me to it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, um, as always, we have really fascinating guests who... um, uh, who are who are luminaries in the field, and and today it, it, these two guests definitely speak to that. We have on um, Andrew or Andy Hargraves, uh, Hargreaves, excuse me, and Dennis Shirley. Uh, they've done so much that they probably don't need much of an introduction. They have such a long history with an emphasis on educational change and social justice. So I'm really thrilled that we have them on today to talk about what is a really timely topic, and that is the topic of identity. I, I don't know where you'd have to be living to not have to not be frankly bombarded with um, a lot of talk and discourse around identity, and and feel how complex and difficult this topic is. Yeah. So their their latest book is called The Age of Identity, Who Do Our Kids Think They Are and How Do We Help Them Belong? Um, it's a book where they meticulously, meticulously explore the history of identity, but also ask readers a lot of probing questions and um, and try to complicate this conversation, which I do. I think it needs complicating. Um, I think they are uh, really pushing to expand the idea of inclusion move away from all kinds of binaries. Um, and I think this conversation, you all are really, listeners are going to really see um, how respectful they are to such a nuanced and complicated topic. Yeah, I think that was beautiful how you said that. Um, because you're right, it's, it was, I always, people will notice during the interview that there are these, there's a spectrum and they complicate it at the same time they clarify it. Mm-hmm. And you th- and people often, you know, one of the things I said at the end is with identity, it's this monolith sometimes where you're kind of like, you're this identity and that's all. You have to check that box. And yet what we, we find through the conversation is that it is much more nuanced. And to me, one of the things that I thought was important during the conversation that people were here is this is not just about kids in school, although that's important, it, for sure important for kids in school. But we also got into the conversation of understanding our identity helps us as we age. You know, I and people hear me talk about, you know, when you get to retirement and, and maybe you were a teacher or a school principal or a superintendent and you identify so much with the position that when you retire, you're a little bit lost because you're wondering, who am I now? And We've even talked about that. So I feel like we've covered anywhere from birth to (laughs) every birth and death and everywhere in between. But um, what a a really interesting conversation. Yeah, we covered a lot in a short period of time, but I think people are going to walk away feeling um, edified, curious. Um, It it really speaks to just who they are as thinkers and as researchers, what you'll get. when you get the book and you read it, uh, I think listeners, um, you're really in for 
an, an important listen uh, for people who are, you know, leaders who are on the front lines who are forced to grapple with these issues, whether, you know, they want to or not. We know it's they're meeting you at the front door a lot of times and that, um, you, you know, just burying your head in the sand probably, you know, <laughs> it's it's not going to really work, like figuring out a different response. Um, and, and this, and I think this is an episode that could, again, like you said, be clarifying. Yeah. It could help. Well, I'm looking forward to, or I, I hope people are looking forward to hearing it because, I mean, first and foremost, it's Dennis Shirley and Andy Hargraves. And d- this was truly international. Like, I'm here in upstate New York and, and yeah. you're in, in the New York City area. And then we've got Andy in Ottawa and we've got Dennis hanging out in Italy. So, you know, this, this was very much international. But, you know, it's Dennis Shirley and Andy Hargraves. And one of the things that I've, I, I mean, I've known them for a long time now. Um, and they're just deeply passionate about things. They kind of, you know, I think one of the things, and I didn't talk to them about this, but I think one of the things people need to understand about researchers like Andy and and Dennis is that um, they're deeply passionate about learning. And they may have said it on air, but they definitely said it off air, that they learned a lot about themselves in this research. And that's just awesome to hear. So I hope everybody enjoys the conversation because I certainly did. It was good for my soul. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, All right. Well, we will let them do the rest of the talking and I will see you on the other side. Come explore Corwin's free new teacher toolkit and resources. We've curated these resources based on extensive research from teachers, coaches, and principals alike. Whether you are brand new or a veteran teacher, find ready-to-go teaching tools at corwin.com today. Annie Hargraves and Dennis Shirley, welcome to the Leaders Coaching Leaders Podcast. Welcome. Glad to be Thank here. You. Looking forward to the conversation. It's it's so good to have you on. And I just want to jump into, let's jump into the, the new book first, and then we can, you know, go wherever the conversation takes me. But, you know... Dennis, you and Andy wrote The Age of Identity. Who do our kids think they are and how do we help them belong? This is a really important yet nuanced conversation. So I'm going to go to you first, Dennis. Why did you decide that this was a book that the two of you wanted to write? So we were doing research in Ontario and the government had four uh, priorities for the educational system. Um, This is pre-COVID. And one of them had to do with promoting student well-being. And we found that one of the ways that the 10 districts we were studying were trying to promote student well-being was by promoting their identity, because there have been a number of identities that have been oppressed and marginalized. Um, so often we think of racial identities in Canada. It might be more indigenous identities. Um, a number of districts were working on LGBTQ issues. Um, also thinking about the identities of students who have special needs, mm-hmm. who have learning disabilities. That's a particular kind of identity. So we kind of, um, we didn't say we want to go out to schools to study identities. We went out to schools to study how districts were implementing the government agenda and identity was everywhere. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we decided that we would see what was happening. And that was really how the book began. So Andy, what did you find when you started doing this work? Because I would venture to guess that we have um, many more identities to talk about than maybe we 
um, we kind of recognized years ago. So what, how did this kind of stick out to you? How did, how did the identity concept stick out to you when you were trying to do this work and what did you learn? Yeah, thank, thanks, Peter. I, I think, uh, first of all, you know, our great privilege is uh, we're professors. Mm. So we're, we're paid to watch people, listen to people, um, help them and support them where we can by feeding stuff back to them. And, uh, and then the greatest privilege of all is we're paid to read stuff. Mm. Uh, like we actually get time to read stuff for which we get good money. And so we began by trying to understand, and in some cases showcase, uh, great things that districts were doing, responding to uh, the idea that identity was a big part of inclusion and that inclusion is a big part of achievement. So it's hard to achieve unless you feel included, and it's hard to feel included unless in some important ways the school understands and pays attention to who you are in its uh, curriculum and the way it works with you and so on. So that that is kind of where we began. And as we started reading around to think, uh, well, what can we learn about identity? What do we already know? What do the psychologists have to say? What do the anthropologists have to say? Or what do the cultural theorists have to say? Um, what is um, What are people looking at now around identity issues? So very contemporary concerns with things like intersectionality. That's when we have uh, multiple things that, that we're dealing with as a human being, not just one. Uh, so, you know, we may be poor, but we're not only poor, we may be black, we may not just be black, but we, we may be marginalized in other ways, we may be female, we, so but people don't come in ones and twos with their identities, they come, the identities come in in whole bundles. And then in the press, frankly, on, on the media, on our social media feeds, particularly within the last two years, two or three years, uh, we've seen and noticed that there are huge controversies uh, around identity, like all across the political spectrum. Songs are banned, uh, uh, books are banned, uh, and, and again, not just from one perspective, but, but from uh, different perspectives. And so we started to think, what does our work have to contribute uh, to this debate? So it is not quite so uh, adversarial and confrontational, um, putting a lot of leaders on the spot, actually, in terms of not really knowing what to do. But how can this work we've done and the reading we've done around it, and uh, to some extent also drawing on our own life experiences, um, how, how can this help us uh, open the debate so more people pay attention to oppression and marginalization and exclusion as significant parts of what they have to deal with. And that also when they do that, they try to approach it in a way that um, doesn't begin with certainties and set opinions, but, but that involves listening more closely to each other, having more empathy for each other's point of view and, and trying actually as a professional community to be inclusive about the way we deal with inclusion. So, so one of the things that you, you had a lot there that you were saying, and I know over the past few years, you know, there's been this pushback against social emotional learning. There are people that are going to be listening to this saying, you know, Dennis and Andy, 
you don't get it. You know, there's uh, there we get so much pushback. We have parents showing up to our you know our board meetings, and a lot of people are saying, you know, schools are a place where you just need to focus on academics. So why is this such an important conversation? And given the importance, why is it so controversial? So Dennis, I'll start with you on that one. Why is this such an important conversation in, in general? And then why is this so controversial? Well, I think that the answer for why it's so important has, you can just look at some of the statistics for you know LGBTQ kids and you know suicide attempts or you know kids of color not completing high school or um, you can kind of look at any number of numbers in which identity issues are implicated. So th that's a kind of a that's a kind of a very simple way to begin the conversation. But one of the things I'm really proud of with the book is the idea that not just students who are from marginalized populations have identities, stigmatized identities, but everybody has an identity. <laughs> and so how can we create conversations in which people can talk about their complex overlapping identities? And Peter, I think that there's ways to do this that get beyond the polarization really quickly and are kind of fun. So when you write a book about identity, you start asking people, well, tell me about your identity. And one person will say, my identity is my hair. <laughs> Seriously, you know. And then somebody else will say, my identity is my clothes. And yes, of course, people will say, you know, race, gender orientation, and all of those things. But there's so much more that's going on with identities that could be point of departures for inclusion. And, you, you know, we do have a crisis in many societies, the U.S. among them, with loneliness. An epidemic of loneliness. And that's really tragic that people feel that they are not seen, that they don't belong anywhere. And um, I think that there's an opportunity there for us to think about how can we bring people in? How can we welcome them? And um, and this would go across the spectrum. So one of the things um, I, I I came across this some years ago. But if people ask me for my politics, I'd say, I, I belong to the party of education. Mm. So, so how can we kind of frame things in terms of education, promoting learning, human development, flourishing, all, all of those things. Mm. And if we just try to do the academic stuff, we're gonna leave so many kids behind, so many kids out. So I think that that's the answer to your question for why it's so important and also a bit what are the opportunities that we can have and and you know i i do understand i sympathize with people who have been told can't do anything about gender can't use this book can't teach that statue all of those things you know i was fortunate when i was in high school i have i had teachers who loved to expose us to many different points of view and Boy, was that exciting. And, you know, students really don't like it when we preach at them right. from any perspective. That's self-determination theory. So I think there's an opportunity here, but I am mindful about the minefield that's out there for many educators. And we, we have to acknowledge that and work with that. 
I really, I enjoy Dennis, the, the answer about the education piece, because I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, one of the pieces of research that I've remembered from like over a long time is Odatola's research in the, in 1972, that talked about our students were alienated from our schools because they don't have an emotional connection to their teacher school, or they don't have a voice in their own learning. And that's part of what you're doing. But Andy, I feel like, and I've known you both for, for a while, I yeah. feel like this book is also about humanizing yeah. this. And that's what I, I mean, I was fortunate enough to, you know, read it before it was published. And I feel like it was all about how can we humanize things because we've gotten so, some of the rhetoric has just become so evil. And I feel like the two of you were talking more about how can we interact like humans and humanize this conversation around identity? Am I off on that or, or am I correct, Andy? No, I, I think it is a very humanistic book. I um, In another part of my professional life, I bring together uh, ministers from uh, secretaries of education from uh, seven uh, systems uh, of countries and states, provinces, uh, who are committed to uh, democracy, inclusion, um, equity, human rights. So this is a big part of who I am. I think it's a big part of who... Dennis and I are, and you know, a great starting principle for all learning is you begin with where the learner is. Mm -hmm. So you begin with their prior knowledge and uh, what they know, and you begin quite explicitly in some countries' uh, curricula with with who they are and what is their developing self, mm -hmm. who they want to be, what they feel part of. And a difficulty with the identity debate is there's lots of people going around pointing fingers, telling people who they are, or mm. telling people which which box they they fall into. Um, and for instance, uh, I have uh, I talk about them in the book. I've got uh, five uh, grandchildren, all of them uh, mixed race. Uh, the vast number of mixed race people in America, there's no box for them to fall into. They don't appear in curriculum materials. They're not part of the discussion. Are they black? Are they white? Are they, are they one, one or the other? Where do they belong? And, and there's a lot of people out there who want to put them into one box or another to suit their own agendas in all kinds of ways. So take my grandson as an example. And he's in the book, so there's no surprises uh, he, he's uh, 10 years old and um, you know somebody else wanted to say what is his identity they might say well uh, he's he's a boy he's um, he's uh, mixed race he's uh, middle class well you know the place to begin is by asking him so so Jackson said what book are you writing at the moment I said well you know I'm, I'm writing a book about identity I said, well, that's really interesting. So I said, Jackson, what's your identity? And when you ask people this question, and we ask people in all kinds of roles, like, like taxi drivers, hairdressers, uh, hotel receptionists, of all kinds of colors and backgrounds, all over the nobody regards it as an uninteresting question. Like, nobody. And so Jackson's, I said, like, give me three things about your identity. And he said, he said, well, I'm Canadian. Because national identity is very important to a lot of people, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes more than one national identity. And then he said, I'm a brother. And, and when I fed that, because he got two sisters, when I fed that back to his mother, his mother cried. 
uh, she, she thought it's such a lovely thing to say mm -hmm. that he sees himself kind of as a brother to his sisters. And then he said, and I'm a gamer. Um, so whatever discussions you have about identity with Jackson as a 10-year-old or any 10-year-old, be begin with, like everything, with people's sense of who they are mm -hmm. and, and then help them figure out what they might become, mm -hmm. how that involves other people and what you can belong to together. I mean, this is... This is like John Dewey 101, uh, basically, but it's still alive and well and important in the world we're in today. Well, it kind of reminds me because I taught first grade for seven out of 11 years. So we always started off with who am I, you know, in the, yeah. the first, yeah. first week of school. And when I'm hearing Andy talk, Dennis, it makes me think about, you know, I'm you see the deeper connection between if students are not only not only do they understand who they are, but the fact that they're allowed to articulate it within the classroom and be able to talk about it. I would venture to guess, and you're the researchers, I would venture to guess that that would be a pretty strong case for developing student voice and helping students actually academically. I would think that it has a power, pretty powerful impact on students engaging academically as well. Yeah, I think that's great, Peter. Um, and. You know, the interesting thing is we often don't ask yeah. our students who they are. And then another interesting part is we don't ask our colleagues and we don't ask ourselves who we are. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the most courageous things I ever saw in, in some professional development that I was leading in Darwin, Australia, was a principal who said, and he was maybe 60, 65, he said, you know, most of my life I've known who, who I was, and what I stood for and advocate that. But right now I'm not so sure. Which is he was negotiating um, one of Erica Erickson's stages, okay, um, and and of course that's interesting, isn't it? It's interesting that we don't just acquire identity, or I hope that we don't. That's just frozen in time, but we go on growing and changing, and that can be really rich for our conversations with our colleagues. And I think um, you know, Peter, earlier you were talking about self awareness. Mm -hmm. oh, you're working on a book where that theme is very prevalent. Well, I think it's it's something that we all could benefit from is some introspection. Uh, I'll be very interested in the response to the book because this book actually has a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. It asks readers to reflect for themselves on who their identity is right now and who they are becoming. And I hope that people will read those sections and we'll get to know themselves better and we'll become better leaders and better teachers. Well, Dennis, I want to go with, you know, what you were just saying too, because you're you're triggering another thought for me. When you're when you're talking about this topic of identity, and you were just talking about a principal who's 60 or 65, made me think about I identify it, you know, when I was a teacher, I identified as a teacher. I identified as a school principal. And now I'm trying to figure out what my identity is because I don't like calling myself a consultant. So I'm like, I'm a leadership coach, I'm an author. But also, you know, Andy, you were talking earlier about the whole idea of loneliness. And the thing that's interesting about identity with the way you're pursuing it is that often when people retire, they struggle because they've lost, they feel like they've lost their identity because we identify so many of us so, um, closely to our profession and what we do, especially if you're in education, 
that when you retire, the identity piece becomes very important because you how you identify yourself has changed. And that actually poses problems for people. They go from, you know, having the status to now they're a retired person. They don't always know how to identify. And that can be actually very lonely for them as well. Did you find that? Like, was that a part of it as well? Well, well, well of course, you know, we're, uh, how can you write a book about identity and not be in the book? And it <laughs> about you. So we, we, we do have uh, little scurrilous bits here and there about, um, you know, we whine a bit about being in that group that the wait staff always move to the back of the restaurant because incoming younger customers don't want to see nearly dead people sitting sitting in the window uh, and putting them off their food. We do talk about not wanting to go into retirement communities uh, full of only other retired people wearing pastel colored polyester pants, uh, playing golf all day and eating early bird specials at, at, at the restaurant. So these are kind of whimsical, but but there's a serious question. And, you know, both of us are retired now. Yeah. And, um, and, and in particular, I thought about this a lot um, for the few months before I decided to retire. We... I retired a bit early because we moved back to Canada to be near our grandchildren, which is a very significant part of my identity, actually, as a as a grandparent. And it turned out to be a spectacularly good decision. And of course, the first thing you think about is, can I afford this? Mm -hmm. And then you kind of go through that. But but that is really um, a camouflage for a deeper question. And the deeper question for us and for many people around us is. Who will I be? Mm. Because your line of work, when you meet people, what is one of the first things you ask? What do you do? Mm -hmm. What do you do? And it's, just, and, and it, it's not in a lot of the identity literature. Mm. And, and so I began to talk, including with Dennis. said, look, I'm going to retire. I'm going to go to the frozen north of Canada in, uh, in Ottawa. And... Um, I know lots of people in Canada. I know practically nobody in Ottawa, no position there, nothing. What will I do if everything comes to a stop? Mm -hmm. My whole professional life. I move north, away from all the people I've known at Boston College, and everything stops. The writing, the, the speeches, the applause, the students, the admiration, the gratitude. What will I do if all that stops? And then people, including Dennis, said, don't be stupid. You know, you're like, you're, you're famous people. When you've got more free time, people will be falling over themselves. I said, no, I said, I really need to think about this question. So I'm British, so I don't believe in um, Pollyanna theories of life where everything's going to work out fine. Uh, I'm more inclined to look at what's the worst case scenario here and can I deal with it? So the worst case scenario was, it will all stop. It will all come to an end. I'll be done at 68 years old. How would I feel about that? And it took me about six weeks. And I decided, I'll feel just fine. I'll feel just fine. Um, I've had a good professional life. I think I've helped improve some things. Um, helped kids, helped schools, helped, helped educators. Um, 
and uh, I'll carry on writing. Nobody will read it, but I'll still carry on writing. Um, wow, you are brutally honest uh, and wrong about yourself, by the way. And, uh, at least one well, of us, I would read it. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. So, so that's three of us then. Um, they, they, you know, I have my grandchildren. I, I love my grandchildren, and uh, and uh, COVID actually brought us so close together, and mm -hmm. um, and that is a monumentally important part of who I who I am. Um, I have other interests, uh, particularly hiking, so I, I walk more. Um, and so I decided I'd be absolutely fine. But 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 that's uh, that's a we have colleagues for whom this question is a very difficult question. Yeah, I mean, I could see why that is. I you know when I'm running a, a workshop, I will use a protocol where I'll ask three questions and they're in groups of three, it's called Microlab. And one of the questions that I've started asking is, what do you want What do you want your leadership legacy to be? And you don't think of it when you're in it, right? You've got the day-to-day -day and all that stuff. So when you're having a very difficult conversation, you're not thinking to yourself, oh, I wonder what my legacy is gonna be when I'm you know, 20 years down the road. But it's a very interesting question to be able to ask and it does tie into the identity piece. One of the things I want to get back to is more of, I guess, a little bit of the controversial side of it, because the book spans a lot. And there are things in there, there, there are topics in there that I think people can digest and others that we know are really controversial. The two of you have been huge advocates for the LGBTQ community hmm. and over the years. And I remember, Andy, I was with you in London and you got up on stage for a keynote and started talking about safeguarding LGBTQ students. And what's interesting for me is that as a gay man, if I get up on stage and do that, people are thinking I'm pushing an agenda. But I've always talked to you about the fact that you were able to do that and people would definitely listen because they didn't see you as pushing an agenda. When you're when the two of you were writing this book, is there a the reason you went into it as learners and then you started to see this topic come out? Does that give you the ability to talk about a lot of controversial issues in a way that you'll get a pass and other people won't? And I don't know if that's a fair question. It just, it reminds me of, you know, because I've, I have, I've had people say, well, I know that you're, you know, work, you've done some work on LGBTQ students and that was my doctoral dissertation. They know I'm gay. They're like, but you can't talk about that here. So I've actually been banned from talking about those kind of conversations. Do you both kind of get a pass where some of those things are concerned because you're going in as researchers and learners? Does that question make sense? Yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense. And so, you know, we're, we're very privileged in, in this regard. We can do the advocacy without people saying, oh, you know, this is self-interest, although they don't always know. So, you know, my daughter is bisexual and she's had to put up with some harassment. Yep, yep. Very painful. Yeah. And that I, I wouldn't have known about if she wasn't my daughter, mm. right? And, um, and so I'm actually, when I do advocacy for LGBTQ students, it is self-interested yeah. <laughs> because, um, you know, I, I want her to flourish, right? And you could kind of go through, you, you know, we, we write about uh, mixed heritage um, children and identities. Um, 
we we write about identities that I'm a little bit worried that some of our will lose some of our U.S. readers. So, the population in Ontario that speaks French and that goes to French language school, and that we come across these great quotes where identity is more important than achievement. Mm -hmm. right? That's a really interesting statement, and the fact that it's coming from French Canadians in Ontario might make it easier for people who push back against identity issues to listen to. You know, so that's not that's not so fair, but I, I, we're trying to kind of open up some things there that um, old order Mennonite communities. So we studied one school district that had 7% of the kids were old order Mennonites. They spoke German at home. Okay, they have very different orientation towards mainstream society. So. I, I think that we're kind of trying to pull in a lot of different identities. And at the same time, you know, Andy and I are two old, white, straight, cisgendered men, right? You know, kind of get all that out there. Um, and that gives us, I think, a responsibility, mm -hmm. a, a real responsibility to speak out and um, and to take advantage of that privilege. I, I hope that our readers will feel that we've met that responsibility. I hope if I can, you know, before you come back in with us, Peter, if um, it's such an important point that that you raised, and and I, I think there's four things come out of it. If I could kind of get these through fairly crisply, um, but uh, first is is as you know, the reason I started talking about LGBTQ issues in my presentations is not just that they're aligned with. What I've stood for all my life, which is social justice and uh, equity, but because actually somebody on our team, um, as a graduate student, came up to me and said he wanted to work with me, and uh, I said why, and I said, well, you know, you're famous in the field of educational change, and you've done fantastic work, and I think I've got so much I can learn from you, but in this thing that looks like a field, there's absolutely nothing about LGBTQ issues. And and if I work with you, you can learn from that from me, and 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 you'll become an advocate for that possibly within this field. And it turned out to be completely right. So the first thing is, is there are some people in identity politics who say you can never fully understand what it is to be a gay man unless you're a gay man, for example. And a, and there is a truth in that. No, nobody can fully understand what it is like to be anybody else. But but that doesn't mean we should give up or we should not bother or we should have we should have no voice or no contribution. And if we believe in learning, we we have to believe believe in the power of of learning a lot, not everything, but a lot of what it is like to to be somebody else, and to include that in our social justice agenda. I think second is um, that that helps us both understand that although identity is important to be celebrated. Um, there are people with many identities in the systems we've been in who feel they can't show who they are. They have to hide who they are. Nobody can hide who they are. You, you know, you, you've, um, uh, you're a gay man, you'll know what that felt like, perhaps not so much now, but you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago, you'll, you'll know what, what that was like. Uh, I, um, uh, I was diagnosed ADHD, in my 50s, I'd, I'd hidden all the things that, that go with that for decades uh, beforehand. You know, George Michael, um, who, uh, you know, 
a gay man and uh, Ivan Novello award-winning songwriter um, wrote a song when before he came out with the line, guilty feet have got no rhythm. Mm -hmm. Now think okay. about that. Mm -hmm. Guilty feet have got no rhythm. And if you have to hide who you are, it, it not only damages who you are, it damages other people mm. that you have uh, relationships with. Thirdly, there's more to all of us than meets the eye. To all of us. Uh, you're not just a gay man. You are a gay man. Perhaps you're especially a gay man. But, you know, you've already talked about other, like your professional identity, other parts. And, and what you see isn't always what you get. Um, and uh, there's more to all of us. So nobody would know, looking at Dennis, that he has a bisexual daughter, for example, and that's a very important part of who he is and what he stands for. Nobody would know, looking at me, that I uh, grew up with several years from my mother on welfare and I was basically in charge of the family rather than the family being in charge of me. But you can't see that in me, the more... Uh, so so we, we need to try to get to grips with not just what's most visible, um, but with the fullness of, 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 and the complexity of, of who we are, including the oppressed parts. But, but then for many of us, you can't just divide us into two groups, oppressor and oppressed. Uh, many of us have got what we call conflicting parts of intersectionality. So you may be uh, a persecuted faith group, for example, uh, you know, immigrated to America, um, and um, but you're also homophobic, mm -hmm. and and perhaps the men are patriarchal. You you may be black or Hispanic, and uh, deeply marginalized because of that, but also quite middle class and wealthy because the the black middle class has grown a lot. So. Who is more marginalized, uh, a, a middle-class uh, black individual or a poor white working-class Appalachian uh, family addicted to fentanyl, for example? Um, it, that's an impossible question to answer, but but um, because the many parts of the white working class are also xenophobic and racist. So, so we have these conflicting parts of our complex identities. Um, uh, and we argue towards the latter parts of the book, not to sweep those under the table, uh, but but principles to be courageous, to be like the buffalo and face the storm, um, not run away from the storm, and find ways to to navigate their community through these very important and difficult issues. Yeah, it's just, and I, I know we have to wrap it up, it's just such an interesting conversation because in some cases, identity is very nuanced, which we've talked about. And in other cases, it becomes this monolith where you're like stuck with, your people stick you with one identity when there's so much more to it. And, you know, I just want to thank you both, um, you know, not just for being on show, but I've been, you know, I've been a huge fan of the two of you for a very long time. And this book was just, you know, when you first sent it to me, Andy Hargraves does not take no for an answer, but we all know that already. But when you when you sent the manuscript and you're like the age of identity, who do our kids think they are and how do we help them belong? And I'm thinking, oh, what am I about to read? Um, but I think you both have articulated this so well 
throughout the the podcast um, because it's a it's a deeply interesting book that I think we all can learn from regardless of what your background is because it's really about understanding who we are too as we're reading it and uh, so I just want to thank you both for being on the Leaders Coaching Leaders podcast and good luck with the book because it's amazing. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed the conversation. So, Peter, what did you think? Um, I felt like I was laying down on my therapist's couch and I started just having this open conversation because, you know, I'm talking to Andy and Dennis and you kind of forget that you're being recorded and everything else. But it was just, man, talking to the two of them is is always a fantastic opportunity. I mean, I'm still like, I'm still that guy that was doing my leadership degree and I was reading Andy Hargraves and those, yeah. you know what I yeah. mean? So yeah. when I'm talking to them about this, um, I still have a little bit of that going on, but I, they have a way of clarifying a, a nuanced conversation in such a great way that I was just enamored the whole entire time. Yeah, I mean, what's so interesting about this clarity piece is that I, I also walked away with sometimes part of the clarity is that it's unclear, you know, yeah, and you have to be able true. to, you have to be able to be okay with that. And if there's any, if there's ever a topic where you have to get comfortable with not knowing or not walking in knowing or not making assumptions, it's this, right? Um, so many things, like it's not, you know, their idea about, you know, identity. And I think people know this, but I think when you're just through life and you're busy working you can forget that like so much of identity is not visible and there's just a fullness to it that the only way to really get at this is to really get to to know people um i thought the quote where i think it resonated with you and it resonated with me as well where he says i belong to the party of education <laughs> and then it, oh, i think it was yeah. i can't remember if it was dennis or andy but it was like yes yeah you know and then when i was like I'm the party of like human development of flourishing and it's like you know that's true for all of us it's like you know there's there there are these goals that um I think so many of us share. And like if we can center those sometimes too as our North Star, um, you know, what what could that open up in terms of possibilities? Dennis to me is a Renaissance man. I remember we were all at the ICSI conference in Norway, and it was I was having dinner with Russ Qualia, Andy Hargraves, Dennis Shirley, and and a few other people. And, and just hearing Dennis speak, I thought, I want to be Dennis Shirley. Yeah. <laughs> like he's just, he's this Renaissance man, yeah. different languages, knows a ton about art and music. And I'm just sitting there going, oh, I feel so inept sitting across from Dennis Shirley. I'm, I'm lucky I'm picking up the right fork. Um, but yeah, they just, uh, that's the thing too, is that they're they're both very intelligent guys, but they're they also talk about that we make assumptions about about people based on what we see, and we need to not do that. And I just think going back to the yeah, his answer about education was really interesting to me because it's um, that self awareness piece is yeah. I know that's something that I'm pursuing now with Mike Nelson, but it, it's just really interesting to think about who are we and yeah the whole idea of our legacy what do we you know what are we leaving behind so 
very yeah, it really is. conversation, it really is. Tanya. Pull me out. Pull me out. Feel like <laughs> you, but you and I are both sucked in. So, okay, you know, a little cold water. <laughs> Pinch myself around a bit. Um, listeners, I, I, I hope that you got as much out of this as Peter and I did. There's just so much to continue chewing on after this kind of conversation. Um, and so, uh, you know, I look forward to seeing and learning with you next time. This is fantastic. I don't know what will follow up with it, but I know it'll be something great. Well, I kind of do because I, I am behind the scenes, <laughs> but this was a great one. <laughs> it was. And I, you know, we're always looking for feedback, but this is yeah. definitely a pod. This is definitely an interview that you want to go back and listen to again. And you've got to go into it with an open mind in the first place. So. Open minds. Yes. Yes. Open minds. Tanya, always awesome. Until next time.